You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. If you'll open God's holy word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 Our focus today will be on verses 14 through 21. I'll be reading 1 through 24. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also took some, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Holy Father, forgive us for how short we fall in recognizing the wonder and awe of our salvation in light of our sin against You and in the, the wonder, the, the, the glory with which we've been redeemed. And so evoke our praise today, Father. Have mercy for us in our sins against You Open our eyes to see more clearly and lift our hearts up for You're worthy for what You have done in Christ. In whose name we ask this, Amen. Baptist theologian Walter Shantry writes, The covenant of grace arises from the ashes of the covenant of works. As man takes his first step into the ruins of the cursed earth, He does so trusting in the covenant of grace. So from the covenant of works, or as I prefer to call it, the covenant of creation, we now turn our attention to what is known and called by many the covenant of grace. Between Genesis 2 and 3, we see a new world order. We see a new world order established and then a new world order promised. What's being told to us in in the verses from verses 14 to uh, verse uh, 19 is how the world is now going to run and operate, what this new world world order is, and yet contained within there, there's promise of a new world yet. All remains under God's sovereign rule, but now the earth is cursed, and yet with the hope of future blessing. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the real division of the Bible is is this. First, everything from Genesis 1.1 to 3.14, then everything from Genesis 3.15 to the very end of the Bible. And this spot is not only the critical dividing point of human history, this spot is a critical parting point for the major strands of covenant theology. The two major Groups being Paedo-Baptist, Credo-Baptist. See, what distinguishes us from our Presbyterian brothers fundamentally is not any number of passages that deal with baptism in particular. The fundamental parting point is how we understand the covenant of grace and its relation to the other covenants. The Second London Baptist Confession, also known as the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, is a revision of the Westminster Confession. And as such, it speaks to the great affinity, the depth of of shared belief that we have with our Presbyterian brothers. But whenever we look at chapter 7, well... French Baptist theologian Pascal Denault says, This is the most discordant passage of the Confessions of Faith. Knowing that the Baptists made every effort to follow the Westminster Standards as much as possible when they wrote their Confession of Faith, the originality of their formulation of the covenant of grace is highly significant. Just at face value, when you turn to chapter 7, respectively, of each of these confessions, it's immediately apparent to you that there is something different here. Because whereas the Westminster Confession has seven articles in chapter 7, the London Baptist Confession has only three. So there was some serious editorial work done at that point. The Westminster Confession, chapter 7, article 5 reads, This covenant, and it's referring to the covenant of grace, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. 
under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious though the operation, through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in the faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Now, there's so much that's good and true there, but notice two things. It's saying that the Old Covenant was an administration of the covenant of grace, and it says, that this, it's, it says that this covenant of grace is in the Old called the Old Testament. And in the next section, speaking of the fullness that comes in the gospel and with Christ, it says, There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So this is the way our Presbyterian brothers would speak of the covenant of grace. That there, there is one covenant throughout the Scriptures, but with two administrations. An administration in the Old and an administration in the New. And in contrast, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 7, article 3 reads, This covenant, and it's again referring to the covenant of grace, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it alone, it is alone by the, the, the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality." man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So our Baptist forefathers were not keen on saying that there was one covenant with two administrations. Rather, they wanted to say, there is this covenant of grace progressively revealed, first spoken of as a promise that comes to fullness in Christ. Now, earlier in the series, you may remember that I said, where I believe our Presbyterian brothers got too crazy with the glue. I'll admit that I believe our Baptist forefathers got a bit wild with the scissors at times. And now I want to presume, I want to be so audacious as to take the scissors to both of them. And the reason I do so with confidence is because I believe Scripture is very clear at this point. And I believe that the best Baptist expressions in being faithful to the Scriptures speak in, in the way concerning the covenant of grace that I'm about to propose. I don't think we should speak of a covenant of grace as being made at all in this chapter, as both the Westminster and the London Confessions do prior to that point in chapter 7. I think both of them say that in 7.2, if you're looking for an address. I don't think we should speak of a covenant of grace as being made at all at this point. Rather, I think we should see that the new covenant itself is promised here. It is not made. No covenant's made. No covenant's made here. And we're, we're not looking at the new covenant under a different name. That's essentially what, what uh, many brands of covenant theology do. Many great theologians will speak of the covenant of grace, which is, a, which is basically the new covenant in embryo, uh, the new covenant under an alias, if you will. But even a Presbyterian stalwart and superb systematic theo theologian like Louis Burkhoff will say this much, that you find no formal establishment of the covenant of grace as they perceive it until Abraham. No covenants being made here. The only thing that's happening here are curses being pronounced for breaking the covenant of creation. So there are not two administrations of the covenant of grace. There are what Ephesians 2.12 refers to as the covenants of 
promise. All the, old, all the covenants of old hold forth the new covenant in promise, but they are not themselves the new covenant. And yet, now I've taken the scissors to both. There's no covenant being made here. Let me throw in some glue. Whenever the Westminster Confession speaks of, of the covenant of grace being administered by these types and shadows... I don't want to use the word administer because of the baggage that's there. As though the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, as if they were themselves administrations of the covenant of grace. That's, that's the misstep. That's the difference. That's how they get from circumcision of infants to baptism of infants. Is by that correlation. I don't want you to see that the Mosaic covenant, I don't want you to view it as an administration of the covenant of grace. But I do want you to understand this, that all the covenants of old minister the new covenant itself. They minister the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Every one of them minister the new covenant as they hold it forth in promise in the covenant itself. That whole covenant is a ministering of the new covenant, but it is not an administration of the new covenant. It is holding forth the new covenant in promise. So, before we begin to look at the new covenant as it's held forth in promise right here, let me take you to the one text that I think more than any other makes absolutely clear that the new covenant was not made at this time. Even should we call it by another name, give it an alias, the new covenant is not made at this point. When was it made? Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. Therefore, that therefore is looking back on Christ's shed blood and His accomplished work as our great high priest. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Because of what He's done, He mediates a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Everything that was held out in promise, Jesus Christ by His life and death, His priestly work, becomes the mediator of a new covenant so that was promised is now reality that you may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. The identity of the first covenant will be made clear in just a bit. For where a will is involved, and when you're reading Hebrews 9, you need to understand you read covenant and you read will. If you're reading the Greek, it's the same word in both instances. The, the word, it's adapted by the New Testament authors to refer to covenant, but the word as it was used in, in popular language referred to a last will and testament. And so he uses the an analogy and the imagery of a last will and testament to speak to what's having, happening in the covenant. He's, he's drawing a correlation between the two. This is where we get Old Testament and New Testament, by the way. This is where that kind of language is really rooted in. Where there is, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. When does a will go into effect? Upon death it's established. For a will uh, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, here's his conclusion, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. What's the logical connection? The first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Covenants take place at the death. There's the correlation. What inaugurates and establishes the new covenant? the blood of our Lord. Listen to how he goes on. 
Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Covenants are cut. Remember we talked about the language of reading that God made a covenant with Abraham. That language technically translated as God cut a covenant with Abraham. Covenants are cut and the cutting that establishes the new covenant is the rent flesh of our Lord and His poured out blood. The covenant is held out here in promise. And every successive covenant is never a step backwards. That's another brand of covenant theology that I, I don't like. The Mosaic covenant isn't a step backwards from the Abrahamic covenant. Every successive covenant from this point forward that God makes with man is a further unveiling and revealing and ministering of the new covenant held out in promise. But that promise comes to fruition. That promised new covenant is established and becomes a reality by the blood of Christ. That's why it's so new. It's new. Now, instead of a covenant of grace here, what we find are curses being pronounced for the violation of the covenant of creation. And this is astounding. You see, you see what this is? The promise of the new covenant is housed inside curses for breaking the original covenant. God weaves salvation into judgment. Our God makes the curse of the covenant of creation to serve His new covenant purposes of blessing a new humanity. In the curse, and as part of the curse, this hope of man's blessedness before the very Creator that He's offended is held forth. He's pronouncing a curse upon those involved in breaking the covenant of creation. And inside that curse, He houses the blessings of the new covenant. To establish the new covenant, God will not violate the covenant of creation. Rather, He's being faithful to the very curse that He pronounced for it being broken such as the wisdom of our God. In this curse, this judgment, you find three addresses, each to one of the parties involved. And in order to understand them rightly, we need to recall the covenant terms, the covenant conditions, the commands given in the covenant of creation. First, God commanded, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and following on the hills of that one, second... Subdue it, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Both of those are found in Genesis 1.28. Third, there's an implicit command that you see in, in the purpose God gives man when He puts him in the garden. He put him there, we're told, to work it and keep it. So the terms of the covenant of creation are you work, and you keep, and critical to understanding what's happening in Genesis 3 is realizing that the word keep means guard, protect. Fourth, and finally, there's the command of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Now, God's sentencing commences with the serpent, and that's the central and focal point of this passage. There's a chiastic structure to most of Genesis chapter 3. That's an A-B-C-B-A pattern. A-B-C-B-A. It comes back into itself in a way. And this is alien really to, I uh, think, a lot of Western thinking of 
of what's the most important point whenever you're wanting to communicate something. We'll either start with the most important thing or, or build up to the most important thing. It comes first or last. But in a chiastic structure, the central point is the central point. A, B, C, B, A. The central point, the emphatic point, is the central one. And that is the sentencing of the serpent. Here's, here's the way things get worked out. There's first an interrogation, and then there's sentencing. God interrogates man, then he interrogates the woman, then you have the sentencing of the serpent, the sentencing of the woman, the sentencing of the man. It goes back in reverse order. But do you notice this? There's no interrogation of the serpent. God does not converse and deliberate with the serpent the way that the woman did. There is just a sentencing. And further, unlike the man and the woman, the serpent is directly cursed. Cursed are you. The serpent himself is cursed. And he's cursed because he's done this. Now what has he done? What has he, what has he attempted to do, rather? The serpent has tried to flip the creation order. God, man, woman, creation. He's tried to flip it so that creation is on top. And then, then woman, who gave to her husband. The first thing Adam should have done when the serpent spoke was to keep the garden. Was to put creation back where it belonged under his feet as he's authorized by God. The first thing Adam should have done was to kill the dragon and get the girl. Instead, the serpent is now over the woman who gives to her husband so that they might all of them be as God. But now, the serpent who has acted so arrogantly as to place himself as God, is brought below all, cursed below all, cursed above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. And his cursedness is made plain and apparent. It's demonstrated and manifest in two things. One, on his belly he goes. Two, he eats dust. The one who tempted the man made of dust, the man who will now return to dust, will eat that which man was made from and returns to. Even in the new creation, this is spoken of. In Isaiah 65, the serpent's curse remains. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. So the serpent is not only humiliated above all, but notice, he is again subjugated, placed under man's foot. God establishes a war and he promises that the serpent will lose that war. Where there was once an alliance, now God will establish enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. Who is this offspring? Are we speaking singular or plural offspring? Yes. Offspring is a singular, but it's a collective singular, like the word church. It's a one that may be made up of many. And you see the plural nature of this begin to tease out immediately in Genesis. Abel offers up a sacrifice that pleases Yahweh. Cain is jealous and murders his brother. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Cain's line speaks of many cultural advancements but it begins and it ends with murder. And then we come to Seth. 
at whose birth we're told, at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. And it's in Seth's line that you find an Enoch, Noah. And the book of Genesis structures itself around genealogies like this that are placed side by side. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so you come to Shem and Ham, Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob. And then further making clear what's being spoken of, Jesus, remember, said to the Jews of His day, you seek to kill me, you seek to kill me. You are doing the works your father did. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Then John in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 10, says, By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But this offspring is clearly singular as well, is it not? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this singular offspring of the woman? And that that phrase doesn't even strike you as jarringly as it should. It it just doesn't translate in English. The way it does. It does get translated more so by the King James and the New American Standard where you read the seed of the woman. And still, I think even that, that misses you. It doesn't strike you the way the original languages do. And the Hebrew won't hit you, but if you hear the Greek word here, it'll strike you how potent what God is promising here is. Whenever the Ancient Hebrews determined to translate the ancient Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. This is the Greek word they chose. The seed of the woman, the sperma of the woman. You see how jolting this is. The seed of the woman. Throughout Genesis, again and again, the seed is traced from father to son. Father to son. And here you're being told about the seed of the woman. Soon you're going to come to Abraham. And, and though you're anticipating offspring as many as the stars of the heaven, the whole tension of Abraham's story is that you're just waiting for a child from a womb in which there's no possibility that a child can come from. All the hopes are hinging on the birth of a child where there can be no child. And you're told, remember, you're told in the very same book that the hope of humanity is the seed of the woman. You see? And though it's less dramatic, the same thing plays out with Rebecca. She's barren, Isaac prays, she conceives, and she conceives two children. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in the same womb struggling Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now this prophecy does not necessitate a virgin birth. But the virgin birth is what makes sense of this prophecy. Isaiah tells us, Therefore Yahweh Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. This is the one that Daniel spoke of as one like a son of man to whom all things are put under His feet eternally. Daniel 7, 13-14 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you hear the covenant of creation reaching its consummation in glory right there? That's what's being promised. That what the serpent did does not determine all of human history. And in this light, see if Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 doesn't burst with more significance. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is because of this singular seed the virgin-born seed of the woman, the serpent crusher, that there is now a redemption one in which a new humanity finds victory in their covenant head. This is why it's promised to us in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your Because you are in Christ, who has dealt the decisive blow. By the seed of the woman, the virgin-born Christ, things are placed back in order so that the serpent is at the bottom. And man, made in the image of God, is lifted out of his depravity and delivered from the curse. Praise be to God Almighty. The serpent tried to destroy God's creation and its order and its beauty and exalt himself as God. Man tried to be as God, but none of them made the slightest dent in the sovereignty and the glory of our Lord because he makes the very curse for the covenant that they have broken to house his promise of blessing to make all things new. As we turn to the woman especially as God has just spoken of the seed of the woman. Think of the commands under the covenant of creation that land particularly on her in a distinct way. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what's the curse that comes to the woman? Now, her obedience to that glorious god imaging and God-exalting command. Now her obedience to that command will be one fraught with pain. And further, the one flesh union from which that command comes to fruition will be marked by difficulty. The meaning of your desire will be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you as best explained by looking at the next chapter where God speaks to Cain in chapter 4 and verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, same word, is for you, is contrary to you. But you must rule, same word, over it. Evil have a desire to rule, and she will be ruled. There's not only pain, in obedience to the command, there is disruption between this one flesh union marked by difficulty from this point on. As we turn to the man, verses 17 through 19, you see the same structure of address that was given to the serpent. Because cursed. But the curse is not pronounced directly on Adam. Because you have cursed is the ground. And what command does this curse relate to? Subdue it. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. But now, in pain, man will labor to eat of the ground all of his days. To this God imaging, this glorious command that he's been given, there is now added pain. There's added futility and a finality to this command. Verses 18 and 19. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
See all the futility and now the finality till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Sin did not elevate man to be as God. It brought him back down to the dust from which he was made. Asserting autonomy does not make you more like the Almighty. It makes you less so. Man still made in the image of God. He's still made in the image of God, but that image is marred now. Man will still be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but, but there will be a pain involved in doing so, and there will be discord within the family. Man will still have dominion, but it's going to be a dominion marked by futility and finality. Man will still attempt to use his numbers. He's multiplied and filled. Man will try to use his numbers to do something that's not futile. Let us build something and exalt ourselves to the heavens. He's still in the image of God. And yet he'll obey these commands in a way that's rebellion. And God will so easily thwart those plans again and again. And yet, all that being so, our God envelops blessing within the curses pronounced for violating His covenant. And man expresses faith in this promise. As he turns to the one with whom there's, there's now this discord and division. The one that he just blamed. He, he blamed her and he blamed God. The one that he's just thrown blame on, now he looks at. This one who's just previously, her name has been woman. Now he looks at her and he says, Eve, living. She's the mother of all living. There's the seed of the woman that are uh, the serpent. The seed of the serpent are murderers and they're dead. But the seed of the woman, living. And he looks with faith in this promise that we see in so much more fullness. He, he just saw it vaguely. But it is the promise of the gospel that's held forth there. The promise of the new covenant. And he believes. And the same Adam who sinned by his unbelief is now counted righteous before God and delivered and redeemed by his belief in the Word of God. And following that expression of faith, God in mercy provides garments of skins. After they sinned, they'd made loincloths to cover themselves. And the utter inadequacy of those loincloths is seen in that whenever God, they heard God walking through the garden, they hid themselves. They still knew that they were exposed before Him. And these exposed sinners who have heard God's just and righteous and merciful pronouncement of judgment. These sinners who deserve nothing but an eternal hell, upon expressing faith in the hope God has held forth, are clothed by God. God's words exposed. They convicted. But they also held forth a promise. And when that promise was believed, God in mercy clothed them. Sinner, should you see yourself in Adam... Should you see your sin deserving only God's curse and judgment and nothing more? Should you see this and you too are, you, you feel exposed, you feel convicted? Should that be you and you also see this promise held forth here, the seed of the woman, realizing that that promise has been fulfilled in the Christ who died so that His blood might wash you from all your sins, and who lived perfectly unto God so that you might be clothed in His righteousness. Know that if you would trust and believe in that promise, 
you will be clothed. Your nakedness, your shame, your guilt. You need no longer hide. But you'd be reconciled to the Father. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will clothe you. The Father will clothe you in His Son. That's the glory of the new covenant that's held forth here. Look to the second Adam. Look to him in the wilderness. He was not tempted like the first Adam in a garden full of plenty. He was tempted after having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to turn stone into bread. He was tempted to prove and test the Father's Word. He was tempted to take the very dominion that was rightfully His, but to take it circumventing the path of obedience and the pain of the cross. But he refused because he knew that to truly flip this world right side up, God must be elevated above all. And the serpent brought down and crushed, humiliated and subjugated. And so with that last temptation, he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6. At each and every instance of temptation, he brought forth the Word of God. Contrary to what we see Adam do, he brought forth the Word of God and he, he obeyed it. He trusted it. He believed it. When we do find the second Adam in a garden, he is in agony. And his sweat is as great drops of blood And he trembles at the thought of drinking down the cup of his father's wrath. And yet, he pleads, not as I will, but as you will. And on that cross, his heel was pierced. And he bore the wrath of the Almighty for our transgressions. And thereby the serpent's head was crushed. And the world that was turned upside down by Adam's disobedience is flipped right side up by Christ's obedience so that death itself begins to work backwards with the resurrection of our Lord. And those who believe on Christ know that very same resurrection power so that they become a new creation in Christ. They have a miraculous birth, an unexplainable birth, a birth that doesn't make any sense, a birth from above, so that they become the seed of the women. They become the woman. They become the seed of Abraham. They become children of God. And don't you see, again, at the cross that all of this came by judgment. It came by the pronouncement, the absolute and real pronouncement of curse upon the second Adam. The judgment of the first Adam is our undoing. The judgment of the second Adam is our redemption. God envelops blessing in a curse. And then He makes the blessing to grow to fruition and envelop the curse that once housed it and make it no more. And so let us marvel like Paul. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor 
or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that there's not a hint of thinking, oh, a new covenant was made, wasn't made here, it was just promised. To think that a small thing. What a promise was made here. It's a promise that redeemed every Old Testament saint as they believed it, held forth in, in all your covenants. And it's the covenant that's come to full light and has been established by the blood of Jesus Christ. The covenant that will make all things new. Truly you work all things together for good to those who love you, for those who love you, for your elect. Truly you are Sovereign Lord, and You are good, and You are gracious. For any sinner here, I pray that they not only see their guilt and Adam and the curse it deserves, but You would give them eyes to see this promise bloom into full clarity in Christ. They would see the light, your light, the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ that you would grant them faith and they would be miraculously reborn as the offspring of the woman, your children. For those who are here today who are your children, that we would just be astounded that this promise is ours. That we would just appreciate the, the beauty that comes with seeing this promise come in, in so much fullness and glory as so many who are better than us we're not privileged to. And that because we see it in greater clarity and beauty and glory, we would be all the more earnest to declare not just something that's a promise, but something that's a reality. And that we would, we would worship and adore You. It's come with greater clarity and fullness, so may our praise be with greater clarity as to what's been done and with more fullness. For You're worthy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.